the walls of this city will fall down flat. Go in the strength you have and save Israel. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight. You will shepherd my people. You will become their ruler. See you guys this weekend. Before I get started, I just want to remind you it is not too late to pull that July 4th party together. You can make it happen. I'm telling you, your neighbors will show up. And I can tell you for a fact, there are people that attend Hope today because of July the 4th parties. It's just a way of building bridges, building relationships. I told you, Laura and I, we moved to Fuquay and we are down there and we sent out invitations. So far, we have nine families that have RSVP and seven goats. It's gonna be absolutely incredible in the hood there. So listen, invite people, it's gonna be incredible. And I, 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 I t listen, here's a great line. This is what you can tell because it's supposed to be 98 degrees on the 4th. See, but see, use this. You gotta figure out how to leverage this stuff, right? Whenever somebody says, man, it's hot, say, yeah, hell's a lot hotter. You don't want to go there. So you got a wide open opportunity to share the gospel. So just don't, don't do that. Anyway, but anyway, we are in the last week of our series, Origin Story. Welcome to the promised land. We've, make it, we've made it to 2 Samuel. And uh, we are this weekend focusing in on the life of David. And, and I love the life of David. I mean, the Bible has more to say about David, think about this, than any other character in the Bible. For example, there are 62 chapters in the Old Testament that are committed to the life of David. There are 59 references in the New Testament to David. That does, doesn't mean anything unless I put it in perspective. There are actually 14 chapters in the Bible committed to the life of Abraham, the father of the Jews. 14 chapters committed to Joseph. 11 chapters committed each to Jacob and Elijah. Okay, David 62. That's more than all the rest of those guys combined. So I'm not surprised to discover in the Bible that the Bible says something about David that it doesn't say about any other person in the Bible. And this is what it says. David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. It doesn't say that about anybody else in the Bible. And not only does it say it once, it says it twice. It says it in 1 Samuel chapter 13. It's repeated in Acts chapter 13. He was a man that pursued the heart of God. I also made a list of some of the things that have David as a focal point. There's the city of David, the star of David, the lineage of David, the seed of David, the house of David, the tabernacle of David, the offspring of David, the root of David. I mean, David was an incredible man and he had incredible influence. Carl Sandburg years ago wrote a book about Lincoln called The Lincoln Years. And then he made this statement. He said, a tree is best measured when it's down. And I always think about that statement when I study great Bible characters. I think, wow, I'm glad that they're down because you couldn't really measure their life if they were still standing. So that's what we want to do this weekend. We want to see the measure of this great man. Now, if you were here last weekend when we looked at 1 Samuel, you know that David came on the scene in his teen years. Remember that? God had kind of had it with King Saul because Saul would not obey. He would not follow God's orders. And so after an event, God says, I'm done. I'm done. We're going to need a new king. We're going to need a new king. So he tells Samuel the prophet, I want you to go down to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse. 
I want you to knock on his door. He's got a bunch of boys. I want you to line them up in the front yard. I want you to pass in front of each one of those young men. And Samuel, I'm going to let you know which one's going to be the next king of Israel. And so sure enough, Samuel follows God's instructions to a T. Goes to the house of Jesse, he says, line them up, Jesse. And he lines them up and he goes before Eliab and then he goes for Abinadab and then he goes through Shammah and he's not picking up any vibe whatsoever that this is king material, right? Right, because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. Like, you know, man does that, God looks at the heart. And God's like, no, they're not the one. So he walks past all seven of these boys and he's like, Jesse, uh, are you sure? I mean, there's a lot of boys. You sure this is all of them? And he's like, well, I got one more, but he's a teenager, you know. And Samuel says, we're not, we're not even going to sit down until you get him. So they run out where David is keeping the sheep. You can just see David running in from the field, all sweaty, runs in front of Samuel. Samuel looks at him and thinks, yep, you're the one. You're going to be the next king of Israel. And David probably went, cool, and ran back out, you know, to take care of his sheep. He's 15 years old, didn't you know, right? And God prepares him behind the scenes for 15 years and David finally takes the throne at the age of 30, which is a pretty young age to be a king of a nation. And he reigned as the king for 40 years. You can see the historical flow of David's reign. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4. David was 30 years old. 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And you may be here this week and like, I don't even know if I believe the Bible. Well, I know you believe history. And historians tell us, in fact, when I go to Israel in just a few weeks, we will actually stand on the ruins of David's palace in Jerusalem. I'm telling you right now, historians will tell you that David's reign lasted for 40 years. He, he began his reign in 1056 B.C., and he reigned until 1016 B.C., 40 years. And now, let's get an overview of 2 Samuel. If you have your Bible this weekend, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 2. If not, we'll put the verses up in the screen because see as we get an overview of this book we're actually getting an overview of the life of David and I've had so much fun to be honest with you uh, getting ready for this weekend but there are so many incredible stories and incredible lessons connected with the life of David I decided that between Thanksgiving leading up to Christmas I'm actually going to do a series just on the life of David because it fits right in as you're going to see to the Christmas story. So a lot of this we'll get into later on this year. But when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 2, David mourns the death of Saul. And then after he's finished mourning, the very first thing David does as this new king, when he takes the throne, he decides he needs to spend some time in prayer. So you get to 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 1. It says, in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, well, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. And I read that and I thought, man, that's probably the smartest way that you can actually begin your reign as the king of a nation, especially when you're a young king. In fact, I was chatting with Laura. I remember when we, we first got into the ministry, and I, I've told you guys before, the last thing I ever wanted to do with my life was be a pastor. I thought, that's got to be like the worst job in the world. Because I grew up going to church every week. We never miss church every week. But I thought, you know, who, the one person who's got it worse than me is the pastor. I mean, he has to be there every week. Who wants that job for life? I want to be like the rest of you guys. I want to go to the beach. I want to go to the mountains. I want to go to the lake. I want to get a jet ski. I want to do all those fun things. Well, God's like, yes, yeah, sense of humor. I think I'll make you a pastor. And at 24, I'm pastoring this church. And Laura and I, she's 21. We are so far in over our heads, it's ridiculous. I cannot even begin to tell you the amount of time that we just prayed. We weren't even old enough to have wisdom. Like, God, just give us some smarts, okay? Give us something 
to help us figure out what we're supposed to be doing. I think David was like that. I think he was that humble, like, God, I am 30 years old. I am so deep in this. I don't know what's going on. So he spent incredible time in prayer. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me that David doesn't want to walk into the Oval Office of Israel and presume anything. Even the simplest decision, hey, God, should I go up to the towns of Judah? Sure, you should go up. Where should I go? I don't know, go to Hebron, right? But I want you to see that David begins his reign over Israel with a desire in his heart. See, he's a man after God's own heart. With the desire for what God wants, not a desire for what he wants. He's interested in God's agenda. He's not really interested in his agenda. And I'm sure that that was a refreshing change for the nation. I mean, Israel has been used to King Saul. That's the only king that they've had. And we saw last week he was rash, he was impatient, he was impulsive, he was stubborn. But now David emerges as a very godly, mature, 30-year-old man of prayer. When you get to chapter 3, war breaks out between the house or the family of Saul or the house of the family of David. And it says in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. I think it's just another little hint here from the Holy Spirit saying, David steadily grew. He steadily matured. His character continued to grow. At the same time, the house of Saul slowly erodes and passes off the scene. But yet the, David, the house of David is rising and it's gaining strength. And what's interesting is that David, throughout the entire process, he has the heart of a servant and he has the mind of a shepherd. Let me show you an interesting psalm. Psalm 78, verse 70. It says, he, that's a reference to God, he chose David, his servant, took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. Boy, I'm going to tell you right now, that's a great biography. That's an incredible statement. We know for a fact that he was a skilled administrator. We know that David was a courageous warrior. And I don't think that it's possible to exaggerate just how godly his character was. He's a man after God's own heart, right? By the way, you see a great example of David's character when you get to chapter 4, 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. It says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. In other words, he was five years old when he received word that his dad and his granddad had both died in this battle. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, to really appreciate this story, you got to understand how things worked in the days of King David. In those days, when a dynasty overthrew another dynasty, everyone that was involved with that previous dynasty, they were killed. Everyone was killed. That's just the way things work. But that's where Mephibosheth comes into play. Saul had a son named Jonathan, who happened to be David's best friend. Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. So understand, Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson. And when the news comes that Saul's king has fallen, we saw that last week, Mephibosheth has a nurse, a daycare watcher. She picks him up. She's got to find a place to hide this little five-year-old so that he won't be killed by this new dynasty. But she's in such a hurry. Maybe she trips. Maybe she gets a little careless. Maybe she just has too many things in her hands. She drops this little boy, and he becomes disabled. He becomes crippled. Well, after David takes the throne, he's sitting on his throne one day, and he says, wow, is there anybody... 
anybody else left from the house of Saul that I need to kill? No. He said, is there anybody left from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? And maybe one of his captains walked forward and said, well, David, we didn't want to bother you because I know we kind of try to kill everybody, right? But there is a little boy named Mephibosheth. And I wonder if David said, isn't that Jonathan's son? Yeah. But we didn't bother you because he got injured when his nurse was fleeing with him. And he's become disabled, and we, we just knew, David, he was not going to be a threat to us, so we, we, we didn't bother him. And David's like, wow, where's he living? Down a place called, just south of Fuquay, called Lodabar. In the Hebrew, by the way, that means barren wasteland. That really is, not Fuquay, Lodabar, right, barren wasteland. And he's like, go get him. So they go down. By the way, can you imagine what it was like that day for Mephibosheth as he looked out in the drapes, he hears the... He hears the horse's hooves and he looks out and he sees David's soldiers. He's thinking, right? He's thinking, done. Because that's the way things work. But instead, they get him, they take him to David. And I love what it says. It says that Mephibosheth lived in the king's palace and he ate at the king's table all the days of his life. Now, let me paint that picture for you. This would be the dinner table at David's palace. David, Absalom, Perfection from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, builder of one of the seven wonders of the world. Tamar, who's described as beautiful. Joab, who's a handsome, brave military commander. Five-year-old Mephibosheth. Sitting at the king's table, being one of the king's kids. Now let me ask you a question. Why would God even bother to record this Simple little story about this little boy named Mephibosheth. It's because it's a great example of David's heart. It's a great example of his character. It's a great example of the kind of man that David is. He's not even vengeful towards Saul, who twice we know tried to kill him, who hunted him down for 14 years. He's actually broken hearted over the death of Saul. But I want you to get this picture. I want you to understand that when the flag flew over Israel during David's reign, it flew with dignity and honor and respect and strength. You know what I think the other nations, they looked at Israel and said, yeah, you better leave them alone. I wouldn't mess with Israel if I were you. They got a real king now. That David guy, you met him, I mean, he is kicking butt and taking names. I mean, just stay away from Israel. But understand, David restored the pride to Israel, and the people began to love their country. And patriotism returned. Don't you wish that would happen in our country, you know? But David is at the height of his reign. This is the guy we want to be on the presidential ticket. This is the guy we would vote for. Not those bozos up there running Washington right now. But anyway, that's another message for another time. C. Frederick Owens has written a book entitled Abraham to the Middle East Crisis. Notice that. That means it came out of the Talbot Seminary Library. I sent them money. But anyway, I sent them money. It's a great book. I couldn't give it back. But anyway, this is what it says, and he's talking about the rise of of the Hebrew monarchy, this chapter. He says, everything favored national prosperity for Israel. There was no great power in Western Asia inclined to prevent her becoming a powerful monarchy. With a steady hand, David set out to force back and defeat Israel's enemies who had constantly crowded and harassed the Hebrews. Moab, Ammon were conquered. The Edomites, alarmed at the ever-increasing power of Israel, rose against David, but they were routed by Abishai. Commercial highways were thrown open. 
And in came merchandise, culture, wealth from Phoenicia, Damascus, Assyria, Arabia, Egypt, more distant lands. To his people, David was king and judge and general. But to the nations around them, he was the leading power in all the Near Eastern world. He was the mightiest monarch of the day. That's quite a statement. He was a man of strength. He was a great king. In fact, I want you to see a promise that God makes to David, and this was my thinking behind the Christmas series this year. I want you to see the promise that God makes to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now, this comes on the hills of David deciding that he wants to build a temple for God. Maybe one day he's walking around his palatial palace and he thinks it's ridiculous. I'm living in this nice palace and God's in a box over there in a tent called a tabernacle. He needs a temple. So God, hey, David, I'm going to build a temple. God says, no, you can't build a temple. And David's like, why not? He said, well, God says, you're, you're a man of war. There's blood on your hands. I'm looking for a man of peace. And we know that eventually Solomon built the temple, right? But you wonder how David would react to that. But this is what God says to him right on the heels of that conversation. You're not building me the temple. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. That's the promise. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you this weekend, before I even started this talk about David, how many of you, raise your hand, you had already heard of King David. Just raise your hand. See, that's, that's all of us. You know what that means? We are a fulfillment of that prophecy. Everybody in the world knows who King David is. Did you know that God made this prediction, this promise to David over 3,000 years ago? Your name is going to be great, like the greatest men of all time. For those of you here this weekend, you don't believe the Bible is true. I'm just going to be honest with you. That's an amazing coincidence, right? Everybody knows, just like God said, everybody will know who King David is. And then he continues in verse 15. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed before you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And of course, it's because through the line of David is going to become the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Quite a promise. Greatest name in the face of the earth. And four chapters later, David does everything he can possibly do to make God so mad, so angry that God will break his promise. Because when you get to chapter 11, David, surrounded by all of this success I've been sharing with you, he makes a tragic decision. Chapter 11, verse 4. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Ugh. One evening, he can't sleep. He got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. The man says she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And I assume it was just that fast. He saw her. He was attracted to her. He sent for her. He slept with her. Verse 4, she came to him. He slept with her. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying... I'm pregnant. 
And David, knowing that he screwed up, decides to, instead of confess it and come clean and deal with it, he decides to cover it up. And so he sends orders to Joab, his military commander, in verse 15, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fierce, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. And I want you to see David's response. I want you to see that even this man who is twice described as a man after God's own heart justified his actions. We all have the, the ability to do this. Chapter 11, verse 25, David told the messengers, hey, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. And then he said to the messenger, say this to encourage Joab. And the messenger goes off to deliver the message to Joab. And I'm sure that David probably leaned back against the wall, let out a deep breath, and like, whew, I just dodged a bullet, right? But you get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, and it says, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And Nathan the prophet, who, by the way, was the writer of 2 Samuel, Nathan shows up to the palace. David invites him in. He tells David a story. And the moral of the story is basically this. You can read it yourself. Hey, David, maybe nobody else knows what you did with Bathsheba, but God knows. And he ain't happy. And then David gets the right response. He falls on his knees. He repents in chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But what I want you to understand is even though David repented, even though David confessed, even though God forgave him, there were still consequences that were connected to his behavior that didn't just disappear. It kind of reminds me of something that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 3, verse 25. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There is no favoritism. There is no favorite. King, slave, man, woman, doesn't matter. If you disobey God, I mean, good gracious, there will be consequences. And it's not that God's mad at you. The reality is consequences are just consequences. They're just consequences. Well, what were the consequences of David's sin? Let me give them to you. First of all, the baby that David conceived with Bathsheba, the baby died. Second, Amnon, one of David's sons, raped his half-sister, Tamar. Absalom, who was Tamar's blood brother, okay, so another one of David's sons, hears about the rape, and he's so furious, he murders Amnon, his stepbrother. Absalom becomes so disgusted with his dad and his behavior and what he's done to the family, he overthrows his dad and sends David into exile. And then fifth, David has to run for his life from Absalom, his beloved son, until Joab, David's commander, finally kills Absalom. So David endured the death of a baby, the rape of a daughter, the murder of a son by another son, the rebellion of Absalom, and then the death of Absalom. But I want you to know, even though God let David experience the consequences of his sin, and it was brutal, his promise remained because God is a God who keeps his promises in spite of our sin. That's a great promise.
In spite of our unfaithfulness, God will always be faithful. F.B. Meyer, old theologian, wrote this about David. He says, this is the bitterest of all, to know the suffering need not have been, that it has resulted from indiscretion and inconsistency, that it is the harvest of one's own own sowing, that the vulture which feeds on the vitals is a nestling of one's own rearing. This is pain. I've shared with you before, the toughest part of my job is sitting in my office with someone who has chosen willfully to be disobedient, and now they're living in the backwash of the consequences as their world is unraveling, and the reality hit them, wow, it didn't have to be this way. By the end of 2 Samuel, you can read it, David's on his face, he's a broken man, he's old, he's sick, he can't get warm, and my guess is that he is swamped by the constant thought, it didn't have to be this way. John Greenleaf Whittier wrote, of all said words of tongue or pen, the saddest of these, it might have been. It might have been. Now, I left a little extra time for some application this weekend because I think that the lessons that we can glean from the life of David, they're just, they're just too important for us to skate over. So let me just give them to you. Here's the first one. And boy, if anyone never needed it, it's this area we live in right now. Here it is. Prosperity and ease are often perilous times, not times of blessing. Prosperity and ease are often perilous times, not times of blessing. C.S. Lewis wrote a little book called Screwtape Letters, and in it he writes this, the long, the long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity, these are excellent campaigning weather for the devil. I say, well, why is that? Well, think about it. You're living the dream. You finally got to where you wanted to be in life. Life is good. You don't need God as much at this point in life. You got a boat. You got a beach house. Man, you may even have a golf cart. I mean, life is good, right? You've accomplished it all. You put it on cruise control. You let your guard down a little bit. You relax. You get a little sloppy in your walk with God. Prosperity and ease are often perilous times, not times of blessings. Here's the second lesson. Bad decisions are a process, not a sudden act. Often when I'm around people, and sometimes my own family, sometimes people close to me, and maybe someone has a moral collapse or a moral failure, often I'll hear comments like, I don't know how they ever let themselves get in that situation. I would never, ever let that happen. Let me tell you, be careful. Be careful. If a man after God's own heart had it happened to him, Trust me, the potential's there for it to happen to any of us. In fact, I guarantee you David was one of those who said, I'll tell you what, that ain't going to happen to me, right? I got things in place. So how did it happen? How did it happen? Well, you know what? I didn't take time to show you. But if you go back to the beginning of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 3, you read that David had already early on in his reign accumulated a number of wives. David had, there are eight that are named for us, in 2 Samuel chapter 3, my guess is he had over a dozen wives in all. Now, here's my question. Why would David take another man's wife when he already had a palace full of wives? Well, when you have a palace full of wives, but you're still not satisfied, 
there's something else going on beneath the surface. It'd be easy to say it was lust, but maybe it wasn't lust. Maybe it was just pride. Maybe it was just, I don't know, ego. I can do it. I'm the king. Something, something was going on beneath the surface. My point is simply this. What happened with David, what happens in so many lives, it's, it's never just a sudden act. Nobody gets up one morning, gets a cup of coffee, stretches, and she says, you know what I think I'll do today? I think I'll commit some adultery. No. Nobody says, you know what I think? I think I will do something just really immoral today that I've never done before. It just feels like a good day to do something. It doesn't happen that way, right? It's those little decisions that you make every day where you let your guard down, you get a little, little closer to the cliff, and you get a little, little closer to the edge, and then one day you go over. But my point is, it's a process. So you know that tells me? It tells me that from a practical perspective, we need some guardrails in our lives that keep us far enough back from the cliff, things that keep us in check. And now how do we know where to put those guardrails? Well, if you're married, let me ask you a question. This will help you. How far do you want your spouse go to protect himself or herself morally. How extreme do you want them to be? Well, I know what your answer is. <laughs> far. I want them to go really, really far. I want them to be really extreme with guardrails they put in place. Well, here's my next question. Wouldn't that be the right standard for you as well? Do you know where a fair start? I made a list. This is from years of counseling. Searching for old sweethearts on social media. What harm can that be? Is it wrong? No. Is it smart? Mm -mm. Having meals with members of the opposite sex. Working late with members of the opposite sex. So you never thought he was that handsome before. You never thought she was that attractive before. But it's late. You know? And his personality is better than you thought, you know, right? You know my favorite joke, difference between a fox and a dog, about three beers, about three beers. Here's another one, personal trainers of the opposite sex. Not only have I heard stories, I've been in enough gyms, I've watched it happen. I'm like, mm, something's not right there. And sure enough. Here's another one. Confiding in friends of the opposite sex about personal problems. Let me tease them. If you have a friend of the opposite sex who wants to confide into you about their marriage problem, you know what you tell them? Get a counselor. Hurt their feelings if you have to, but don't hurt your marriage. What's going on in their marriage is none of your business. And what's going on in your marriage is none of their business. Not with somebody of the opposite sex. It sets you up for a level of intimacy you have no business entering into. It's one of the reasons we let our pastors here at Hope do very, very little counseling. We let them meet one time with someone of the opposite sex, a female, about their marriage, and then we send them out because we don't want any of that to develop. See, here's another one. Guys going to strip clubs. I'll be around guys that go to Hope and in casual conversation, they're talking about, yeah, I was just on a business trip, or a bunch of us guys went away. We were at a strip club, and I'm like, you guys went to strip clubs? Yeah. Oh, Mike, we don't even hardly pay any attention to the girls. I'm like, well, then go to Chuck E. Cheese. I mean, good gracious. You don't, <laughs> right? Are you kidding me? You don't pay attention to the girls right. It's a pathway. It leads somewhere, and eventually, you know what happens? It moves from here to here. 
and there's a connection or there's a thought. Here's one. I'll get emails on this one. Girls going dancing with girlfriends because their husbands don't like to dance. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Anything wrong with dancing? I don't think so. Anything wrong with going to clubs and dancing? I don't think so. Is it illegal? No. I've seen some of you dance. It should be. It should be illegal, but, <laughs> but it's not illegal. But is it extraordinarily unwise? Oh, yeah. It's led to affairs. It's broken up marriages. And I know what some of you ladies are thinking, because you get that thing going on. I can see you like a bobblehead dolls out there. Because you're thinking of the email you're going to send me, right? Well, I don't know why. You, well, you got a sick mind. You know, I don't plan on sleeping with a guy just because I dance with. But that's not the issue. It all comes down to the question. To what degree are you willing to go to protect what's most important to you? Where do you want to put the guardrail? Let me tell you something. We have all had friends. We've all known people who got themselves into a mess morally. And this is what we have heard over and over again after the fact. We've heard them say, I would do anything. Anything to be able to go back and undo what I've done. In other words, on the other side of the morality line, it is amazing the extremes to which a person is willing to go to fix the mess that they've created. So here's my question. Why not be extreme now instead of finding yourself in a place where you wish you had been extreme? Because, see, if the consequences are extreme... Why not just make some extreme decisions now? We forbid our staff of opposite sex to ride in a car together, even to go from one campus to the next. We won't allow it. One warning, and then the next time you're no longer a part of Hope Community Church staff. That's extreme, but so are the consequences. It came up in my life this week. I have to go to Washington, D.C. in September and speak at a conference, and Patty, my assistant, she's saying, you want to try to get up there and get back the same day? And I'm like, I don't know if I can. And she's looking at flights. And I said, well, I hate just to speak and leave. And I certainly don't want to run it the last second to speak. And I just, I just want to do that. And she says, well, it seems like you need to spend the night. I said, that's fine. But you know, that means somebody's got to go with me and spend the night with me. And so we have to find somebody. Because I, I, don't, I don't even not even travel. By, I don't stay in a room by myself. Not even a room by myself. And Gary Bett usually has to travel with me. Although that relationship could be coming to an end. Because last time he said, you snored a lot. I may have to break up with you. And so I don't know. I don't know. You guys can pray for us. But anyway, what it comes down to is this. You either have extreme regret or you have some extreme decisions to make. Bad decisions are a process, not a sudden act. So make sure that you have some guardrails in place. And you should go home as Spouses and have that conversation. I, I've always said no spouse should have any, any, any passwords on any mobile device, computer, or anything that your spouse doesn't know. And I'll just tell you, if your spouse won't give you a password, they're hiding something. They're hiding something. By the way, that's why I have to have security. I say stuff like that. But if he won't give it to you, he's hiding something. So here's the third one. Confession and repentance help heal a wound, but never will erase the scar. And I share this out of love, but I got to tell you what. We don't talk enough these days anymore in churches about the consequences of our behavior and our choices. 
I mean, we love to talk about the grace, the mercy, the love, and forgiveness of God, and we should. That is his character. But I'm telling you, we don't talk enough about the consequences of our bad choices. So I just want to leave you with three thoughts. First of all is this. You're responsible for the outcome of your decisions. You're responsible for your choices. And you know what? Initially, some of us are so smooth and so smart. That doesn't even really bother us because we've gotten into so many corners before that we wiggled out of, right? But you need to know you're responsible for the consequences of your decision. And when it blows up in your face, you come back. You can't come back and say, I didn't think, I didn't know, I, I, I didn't realize. It was your choice. It was your decision. Nobody put a gun to your head. So you are responsible for the, the consequences, but the outcome of your decisions. Here's the second one. If you choose to work against God, if you're a Christian and you choose to work against God, in other words, you just like, I'm going to do my own thing, eventually, I promise you, you will self-destruct. God won't need to write, you know, strike you down with a lightning bolt. He won't need to set up a car accident, some mysterious disease, mysterious fire. He won't do that. You will self-destruct. Remember Judas? Sold Jesus out, then he felt guilty and went back and tried to return the money. And they said, forget it. It's on you. It's on you. So Judas got on his donkey and was going like 45 miles an hour down Main Street and went to an intersection and hit a head, another donkey head on it right through the ears, killed him. No. God didn't need to arrange that. No mysterious disease, no mysterious fire. What happened? He hung himself. He hung himself. He, did, you know, he didn't need any help. God didn't have to do anything. And in the same way, I'm telling you, the consequences of your behavior, you'll hang yourself. God doesn't have to intervene. I mean, it's just the natural consequence of trying to do life contrary to God. doesn't mean that you go through the consequences that God hates you, that he's turned his back on it. It's just consequences are consequences. When you make dumb choices, it comes with consequences. We see this all the time, you know. It's a single, it's, you know, it's a college student who's trying to get the guy, trying to get the girl, and God just will not cooperate. So you kind of get to the place where forget God, forget his truth, forget his principles. I'm going to do it myself. I'll do it my way. And then you get them, but you should have never had them, and now you got the consequences. It's the married person, you know, who has the affair, who's justified in their mind. How can it, how can it be wrong? It just, it just feels so right, you know, especially when I drink tequila, you know, I know whatever that song is, something like that. It just, just feels right, you know, and, right? And, stupid song, by the way. But what happens? Well, you come to my office, and everything's destroyed. And you're like, well, I should listen to God. Because you realize, well, now I'm responsible for my decision, and I don't like the outcome. Here's the third one. At the end of the day, you're going to come back to God. You're going to come back to God anyway. And you're not going to come back trying to strike a bargain. You're going to come back with your hands in the air saying, God, whoo, I surrender. I surrender. I thought somehow this was going to make me happy that somehow this decision working against you was going to bring me joy, but I don't like where the journey took me, and I'm responsible for my outcome, and I surrender. You'll be like the prodigal. You'll end up in the pig pen, come to your senses. You'll come home to the Father. But I'll warn you, you'll come back with scars that you'll have for the rest of your life. You'll come back with memories that you won't be able to erase. You'll come back with broken dreams and some busted-up relationships that you'll never be able to to repair, but this is what you need to know. When you come back, your heavenly father will receive you. He'll receive you back because that's the kind of God he is. He is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of forgiveness. He is a God of grace. And he'll pick you up. He'll say, let me clean you off. 
Let's learn what we need to learn. And let's move forward. You know, two of our values here at Hope is, two of our values are grace and truth. A balance of grace and truth. You see this in John chapter 8, the woman that was caught in the adultery. Remember they were going to stone her and Jesus said, hey, listen, before you throw that rock, if you've never sinned, you, you go first. And you hear the thump of rocks hitting the sand as the crowd of religious zealots and self-righteous individuals broke up and left. And Jesus is left alone with this woman. No two different people on the earth had ever stood face to face. Jesus, the son of God, a woman just caught in the act of adultery. And what did Jesus say to her? I don't condemn you. In fact, where are those that condemn you? And you're like, they're gone. I don't condemn you either. He didn't condemn you. That's not the point. See, that's grace. But then he said this, go and sin no more. In other words, if you want your life to change, if you don't want to suffer consequences of bad decisions, you got to stop making bad decisions. See, that's grace. But it's balanced with truth. You can't undo the past. You can't unring the bell. But you can always draw a line in the sand and say, it is what it is. What's been done has been done. But moving forward, I have a God of grace. And even in the ugliest messes of our lives, it's amazing how he can take it and make something beautiful. But you got to get to the point where you say, I surrender. I got it. I've learned my lesson. And then he'll go to work in your life. Let's bow our heads. Let me just, before I pray, let me just say a couple things real quick. Maybe you're here this weekend and you're, you're close to the edge. I mean, you are oh, looking over the precipice. And you're getting ready to make a bad choice. I mean, you are right there at that crossroad. Stop. Turn around, back away from the cliff. You will never find joy and happiness in being disobedient to God. Save yourself the consequences, the hurt. Just thank you, God, for the timely message. Just say, th say that and say, I'm backing away from the cliff. Make the decision you need to make. Make the phone call, have the conversation, but back away and come back into line with God's truth. The other thing I want to say is maybe that those of you who have already gone over the cliff as I said, God will welcome you back. Boy, his arms are open. I mean, he, trust me, he misses you more than you miss him. And like I said, he'll clean you up. You'll learn some lessons. He will somehow use it for his glory. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't condemn you. But consequences are consequences. As we've learned in this series, it's never, ever too late to start doing what's right. Father, thank you for being that kind of God. You love us too much. You love us too much. You're just not the kind of God that erases consequences because that's what helps us remember that life outside of your will and your principles and precepts will never bring us joy. It will only bring us pain. I just pray for people who have made decisions. I don't want them to feel condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But maybe they need to feel convicted. And conviction is a good thing because it means you're working in our spirit. 
Help us to make the right choices. Maybe sometimes the tough call, but just to do the right thing. And Father, I can't wait to see how you're going to bring freedom and healing. We thank you that your mercies are renewed every morning and that your faithfulness is great.